This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Hello and welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler podcast. This is episode number four with Bobby Hayes from Ducklander Calls. Every time we hang out to do a podcast, they just go kind of long. So it's it's nice to be able to chop them up and, and bring them to you guys. I got a lot of good feedback from the previous episodes with Bobby and, and the one right before this, actually. Um, if you haven't heard that, you might check that out after you check this out. So. Um, let's go ahead and start with finishing ducks. Cause I know you put out a survey on Instagram and you were asking people what they considered finishing ducks and what were, tell me what were your four options and what did most people pick? I think I didn't you have a multiple choice on that? Yeah, Wasn't it a multiple I, did. Choice thing? I think it lets me have three. I'm trying to remember what Instagram story does. I think I had inside 20. Inside 30 and inside 40. And the majority of it came back inside 20. I think was the number one thing everybody chose, which I figured, right? But a lot of people mm-hmm. picked inside 40 as well. So, mm-hmm. so what got me what got me thinking about this? If I scan through reels, right? I, I see I see the birds and I see the shoot and then I see the comment like oh man those were so close and I know they look further away than in the camera right but when I watch a lot of it I don't see anything finished about any of it so that's why I was curious what everybody's thoughts are to me I know that technically if the bird is sitting down but you're at 40 yard to me that's not a finished bird that's but I know also that's not the game I play so 
Yeah, to me, inside 20 is finished, but I have to actually have it attempting to land, not just flying by me at 20 yards. I'm not saying. Yeah, that's why I didn't. I didn't like that about the multiple choice. Yeah, I know. I don't think distance. To me, distance doesn't. Yeah, it's not too detailed on there, right? Uh, You can't do too much. Yeah, but yeah, to me, they actually have to be attempting to land to be finished, not just. Yeah, because I'm not saying you shouldn't shoot it if it's 20 yards out flying by you, but to me, that's not finished. Like you have not fooled it all the way yet. So. Yeah. Now, See, I think I, I've used that phrase. My definition of the word, I think, has been a little bit different because I might even say, well, they finished outside the decoys a little too far away. Like to me, if they're if they're landing, they're finishing. But it seems like your definition of finishing is finishing the way you want them to or finishing in close enough that for your desired shot. Mine would probably be finishing the way I want them to. So like the ultimate for me what my goal is I like to be able to sit up and stare at them down the barrel of my gun without them changing their mm-hmm. behavior. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like if everybody sits up and then they go crazy that, that I don't like that. Yeah. That should, that should happen yeah. after a gunshot, not before a gun. So I think I actually put um, 40 yards on that as was my response. And the reason that I put 40 is Normally, I'm there are exceptions, but I, I, I typically my decoys will all be within 40. There's times where we've run long strings out um, well, well past that. But generally speaking, my, my decoys will stay within a, a shotgunning range. So if they if they attempt to land inside of shotgunning range, I, I would refer to that as finishing. It may not be an ideal to what I exactly want, but that, that would be my definition of what I would, if they put out their feet and they start to, and they start to go into that hover mode. That, that'd be fair. I think that's. You can also tell, so like I've videoed a lot and I get it. Most of these things are cell phone bids. So everything looks like it's crazy far away. Like I get that. Yeah. But you can typically tell how fo- close or far something is by how hard it crunches from getting shot. Sure. Uh, if it's if it's twenty yards and in, typically when that bird, if it gets hit by a full pattern, that neck just immediately goes down, right? Mm-hmm. If it's at the 30, 40 yard mark, a lot of times it gets crunched, but that neck is out solid because it's still breathing, like it's got enough juice. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but so. But yeah, my definition. People do is, seem to use the term finishing for, for close pass shots too. I think it's it liberal, like. right? Yeah, to me I'm like, that's not yeah. finished bird. Yeah. No, I'm not picking right. on anybody. I'm just curious what definitions are. Right, right. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. it's not a I'm right and you're wrong. It's no. it's just it's it's just what do people consider it to be. Yeah. Did you have anyone contact you and bring up any interesting conversations around that or No, not too much on feedback that one. at all. Yeah, not too much on that one. I usually, usually um, on the story, I don't get much conversation wise. I use the story a lot for business stuff. Like if I want to know right. like, Hey, how are we doing? What can we do better? I'll post that. I'll get mm-hmm. a pile of comments on that stuff. Uh, like I posted one, might've been last week or the week before it was, what's the hardest part of buying a new call? Like what's the challenging part? I got a pile on that. And I do that because mm-hmm. a lot of times they'll send me back stuff I've never thought of. Yeah, just somebody struggle on what they're trying to do. 
which I, yeah. I try to do that too because you can kind of convert that to buying waders or buying a shotgun. So if I'm doing a podcast or writing a blog, I can go with it from a perspective of this is what a new person is thinking about versus somebody like me who's done this for 20 or 30 years now. Because I know, I know I pick out equipment different than a new person does by far. Another episode you had was equipment. And and if you covered this, I didn't hear it because this is the one thing that I wanted to to hear you cover is your thought on waders. Um, what has your history been with waders, and what is do you feel like is the better brands on the market? So so I grew up in rubber waders, and they're terrible. Um, Death traps. <laughs> oh my, they're awful. They're the coldest thing in the world. So then we went to neoprene waders, but they weren't faced. They were warm as could be. But, you know, I think back then you could get maybe 200 gram boots, maybe 400. So mm -hmm. the boots weren't great, but the waiter was warm. But we used to, you tear them up so much. Like if you broke ice in them, it would shred them because there was no right. facing on the neoprene. Mm -hmm. So then they came out with face neoprene waders and heavier boots. Those were amazing. Then they came out with breathable waders. I don't care what anybody says about breathable waders. They leak. They all leak. When you pull on that waiter at the seam, especially in the crotch, they leak. Now, mm -hmm. I am in waiters enough and in a layout blind enough that I physically wear holes in them from rubbing on the layout blind from bad <laughs> habits. Like I'm not, I'm only five, seven, five, eight. So I can put my feet on the bar of the front of the layout blind and still have the door shut when I want to, you know, stretch my legs. And right. I rub the side of the waiter a lot on the, and I'll rub a hole in it doing that every year. So I usually get maybe a season out of a pair of waiters. Um, but a lot of times that's not necessarily due to manufacture, but I also just assume waiters always leak. So if right. that's just my assumption with them. So if they don't leak, if they leak so little that when I take them off, I have to figure out if it's sweat or water, I could care less. Um, I just figure that's part of a breathable waiter. Mm -hmm. So now I will say this breathable waiters have gotten very expensive. Holy cow. Um, I think the, maybe the non top ends are pushing four and $500 now. Right. So I went to Sitka waiters last year. They're amazing. Most comfortable way. I don't do anything with Sitka. Preface that. I doubt they even know who I am. Um, they're amazing. Now they're, thousand dollars but the boot on them is incredible they have a lacrosse boot on them and they're the same boots i think that i wear from lacrosse the rubber boots which is the best boot i've ever seen that's amazing uh but really what i love about them is you can order the uppers in size so since i'm not tall waiters do not fit they're always too long and these things are the closest i've ever had to actual waiter fitting so they're amazing, but and do they have a lifetime warranty on those? What's the warranty like? I don't think it's lifetime. Um, so I know a couple of the sicker reps really well. And when I asked them about that, they're like, well, as much as you hunt, it's not going to be lifetime, but the closest I could get to information on it was they're better made than a Sims and a Sims should last eight to 10 years. So well, I can tell you that I had a, I have a pair of us and when I was working with Banded and 
They they come with a three year warranty. That's about a close, not quite a thousand dollars, but but right. close to it. And I had the outer, within three or four hunts, the the outer shell of it, it it got frozen, and because it got frozen, it put tension on it, and that thing ripped right up the crotch. I'm talking within about like the third hunt. Animal. I'm talking about Sims, the fly fishing waiter company. Oh, I thought you said Ascend. No, I don't know what that is. That what a Bandit is? That's that's Bandit. No, no, that's Bandit's top end. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and I know a lot of guys that have had Sims for seven. But that's uh, I think that's an eight hundred dollar waiter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the thicker waiters, from my understanding, I believe a Sims waiter is a three layer Gore Tex product, and I believe the thicker waiters are a four layer Gore Tex product. So they're a little tougher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But. Personally, I haven't found anything better. Um, I've never had a pair of the chin waders on. I've had people say good things about them, but yeah. Yeah. My, my, my history with waders is they're like you said, they're all going to leak and it's normally going to be the seams mm-hmm. and it's just part of the deal. And yeah. so they just, it's just hard to make. It's just hard to make oh, yeah. them to keep water out of things. Yeah, it is. So I usually go with if uh, if you cannot afford to buy thousand dollar waders, especially if you're new at this and you're trying to do it on a budget. I would buy a discounted pair of neoprenes before I bought a cheaper breathable because the neoprenes will last longer. They're just so uncomfortable. They are not as comfy, but they will leak less because yeah. that neoprene has got more give in it mm-hmm. than than the breathables do. I have not had seam leaks with breathables. I've been wearing them for either. I can't, I don't know if this is my fourth or fifth year with, with them, but I have not, all of my leaks have been puncture. I have not had seam leaks. Really? You're, you're rare. No, I take, I take that back. Um, the FA, two pairs of FA, they were tight in the crotch and yeah. there was the, on the FAs that were, but they were, they were came out of the box. They were tight on the crotch and their new yep. pair now fits a lot better. And I yep. didn't have, I had two pair of those final approach. They were both tight. They both leaked in the crotch. I got their newer kind and wore those 20 hunts and didn't have about maybe not, maybe 15 hunts and didn't hey, have any. Didn't Rogers, have any FA, whatever you want to call it. They make as good a breathable waiter on the low end as you can get. They really do. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you're not going to get any better than that for the under, because those are probably 400 bucks now, I would assume. About that, I think. Yeah. 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 So that's as good as you're going to get for 400 bucks. Now, the one thing they do have now that is absolutely incredible. Have you ever used a no-sew patch? No. They're amazing for patching waders. Roger sells them. They're house-branded, but you can just order no-sew patches. But you clean the waiter. doesn't even have to be dry. You clean the waiter off. You rub some alcohol on it to make sure it's clean. You cut the patch to whatever size you need. You put it on there, and you take a hair dryer and make it hot. And it kind of sucks down a little harder, and they do not leave. Hmm. I have not heard of that. Yeah, that that would be great because I have that's that's the issue I've had with breathables is just punctures. The first day I wore a pair, I walked into barbed wire in the in the dark, and they just punctured easier. Oh, you, I think. you can patch the boots with these things. They're amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But they're cheap. I think it's ten bucks for a patch kit. Yeah. But way way superior to the the glue on. Way superior. I've not had any success with the glue on. The only thing I've had success with is big portions of gorilla glue. One time I had some, I was wearing Roger tough man and I was going through those. Like really, I got about three or four a pair that they were giving to me cause they weren't making it through the warranty. And then 
I was sitting, it was, we were on the Kansas river and it was really, really cold and we made a fire and I got too close to the fire and burnt a hole. And that's, I was like, well, I'm not getting warranty on these. <laughs> and I just burnt a hole in, but I used gorilla glue in a huge quantity and it looked like vomit on the leg, but I got about another 15 hunts out of those things with that gorilla glue on there. So the, the real advantage to the Sitka waiter or a Sims is it's an American made waiter. So uh -huh. if you would blow a seam or the boot would go bad or whatever, if you send it back to them, they're physically un, uh, taking that waiter apart and putting it back together. That's how they warranty it. Right. Yeah. So you can't do that with the Chinese waiter. Makes yeah, sense. That's, that's the warranty. That's the value of it. But yeah. now, don't get me wrong. When breathables were 250 bucks. Yeah, it's like, well, we're about the same price because if I go through one pair and you get four years, but now they're $400. I'm like, well, we're probably going to be ahead on the other waiters, on the more expensive ones. So, but I will and say most this. of these companies are only running a 12 month warranty. Yeah. And I'll say this the sick of waiters is the most comfortable thing I've ever had on waiter wise. You don't even know you're mm. wearing them. Yeah. Nice. Uh, the only complaint I would have with them is the uppers are uninsulated because they want you to buy all the system to go inside. I wish they yeah. were quilted. Yeah, quilted waders are amazing. Yeah. So I bought a pair of I went a whole sand. year with breathable, un, um, uninsulated breathables, and I didn't have too many problems with them because they were big enough that I, I could just, you know, go heavy underneath. And Well, that was the nice thing about the, the quilted breathables is you could just wear pants and long underwear and then put your waders on. You were plenty warm. They're like putting bibs on. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely an advantage. So when I switched to these, you change your layer system. But, but the comfort the comfort part probably outweighs the quilt. It, they're pretty nice. Uh, the boots themselves are amazing. But I love lacrosse rubber. Yeah, Titus has a pair of those Sitka waders too, and says the same things about them. That he just loves them. If you put them on and hunt out of them, you wouldn't want other waders. You just oh, yeah. there's about a thousand, twelve hundred. They're about a thousand bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, after you're after you're in them and you're used to them, yeah, it's hard to go. Like I, I just wouldn't go back. Like I'm probably going to buy another mm -hmm. pair of these. So if I have to warranty something, I have backup. Yeah, you definitely having only one pair of waiters is a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> I like to have about three or four of, of waiters I know I can put on if I have to. And honestly, uh, it's the first waiter I've ever owned with a shoulder strap I could shoot a shotgun with. Um, it's just a little strap and it's got a little buckle. So there's no bulk to it. The buckle doesn't mm -hmm. go under your gun, butt, and yeah. you don't even really know it's there. And I'm going to say they're kind of stretchy, but not really stretchy. So they don't, I don't think they'll, they'll lose their fit after, after so long. All right. All right. Let's, let's switch gears. So we're going to get in some topics in between the first time we recorded and the second you had brought up a couple topics you wanted to talk about. And that was actually the main reason that we got in here was to talk about these topics. <laughs> I think they're going to be really, really interesting. I don't know if we'd ever get um, to. I know. But so you were talking about a waterfowler's journey and what it could look like. A new waterfowler's journey. A new, okay, unpack that yeah. for us. Well, there seems to be a recruitment and the retention issue, which I think is a Delta that's got the three R's, recruitment, retention, and something else. 
far as getting people to hunt, right? Um, so that seems to be an issue, and hunter numbers are obviously going down. But we're in a sport that seems to have a rise to it. Like waterfowl hunting, of the hunting that's left, seems to be one of the most popular things right now, which is fantastic. Right. A lot of people would not agree with that. They say there's too many guys hunting on the places to go hunt. Um, that's that Matt Ranella argument. But the other thing about waterfowl is we have one of the youngest demographics of hunters. So we have more young people hunting or getting into hunting than any other hunting demographic. So I think because we have more young people getting into it, there's more waterfowl hunters on social than, say, elk hunters or whitetail hunters. Maybe not whitetail, but the, the more niche sports, water, hunting sports. We have a lot of young people to get into this. And they're getting into it without guidance at home. Because a lot of these a lot of these young guys don't have a parent or an uncle or something that has brought them into the sport. They're just learning it on their own with friends. And I don't know if they see the best things on social all the time. So I don't know I don't know if what they see on social is is good for them to stay in the sport. And I know everybody doesn't want a lot of competition but we have to have more hunters or this just doesn't last so i i tried i think i did i think the first podcast i did for myself was hey if you're new to this this could be this could be how you get into it this could kind of be where you head and then where you end up um so as far as a new hunter's journey like to simplify it what i what i try to tell them is if you can find a mentor, that's great. And then I define mentorship on that podcast because I think that means different things to different people. And then I try to encourage them to slow down, learn how they want to hunt, and then put the money into it and figure out what they like instead of get stuck in the the social media circle of this is all the latest trends on equipment and this is we go out with 15 guys and we make this 100 bird pile because i don't think right. if that's your thing i don't think you stay doing this so my, my goal why, why do you why why do you think that is because i don't think you can i don't think you can capture the nuances of the sport in a great big party hunt if that's how you're doing it that's that's a more social aspect which is great and a lot of guys love that and i'm not knocking them if they do but i think if you're gonna stay in this you've got to learn all the nuances of the sport you got to learn some history you got to learn some knowledge about the waterfowl you've got to learn knowledge about the equipment because you'll you'll hardly find anybody that's really good at waterfowl hunting that don't, doesn't know a lot about waterfowl they don't know they know a lot about the equipment they use they know a lot about where they hunt they can tell you a lot about the history of the sport, why we have the laws. Those are just things you learn that I think that's the main part of the sport. Not the not the eighty birds every day. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to just give a reference to this is this is what you could do. This would be another way to do it. Because I don't know if they get that presented on social very much. Yeah. I, I... You present the same thing to them, which I think is great.
social media is something that I keep bouncing back and forth on um, as to whether hunters over the age of 40, 45, 50 tend to just despise social media around waterfowl hunting. And at first I found myself going down that line and be like, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started thinking, so let's just take, and I'm still, I'm still trying to work. I'm still trying to work through this. <clears throat> let's say guys that are posting pile pictures and, and that's what's important to them. And that's what they like to do. That is perceived as a horrible thing. And, and, and as I'm thinking through it, I'm like, if that, if that's why that kid hunts and his goal is to have a pile picture and that's his motivation. Why is that a negative thing? As long as he is not doing anything unethical in the field, why is that negative? My goal is that's not my goal. It's not your goal, but why, why should we think that that's a bad thing if that's his motivation? So I don't think it's a bad thing. So let me, let me back up a little bit here, but that that's the common, that is the common opinion. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing in itself. My goal would be to promote the sport of waterfowl hunting. So that would include new hunters, right? But I want them to be good at it. I don't want a bunch of guys hunting that, that don't know what they're doing. Like I want to make or help create or bring in young people that will become really good at the sport. Because mm-hmm. to me, that's how you would keep them, right? Now, I could be way wrong about all this, but this is just what I see. Like, if I have to be around other hunters, I want to be around good hunters. I want to be around guys that are good at it. Because um, if you have a marsh full of good hunters, you have a marsh full of no problems. Because you, you can't have problems if everybody's good at it because they just won't partake in that, right? Right. So I want I want to help make better hunters. So that's my goal. It's better for everybody, in my opinion. But at the same time, I know to do that, they have to go out and kill a bunch of birds. So I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about going out and making the 80-bird pile. I do it. But I don't think that can be your every day. Yeah, you've got to get deeper into it than that particular instance. So, like, for me, I don't think you can learn this without going solo or going with a buddy. Like, I think that's got to be your main your main introduction into this is once you once you realize you you love this and this is what you want to hunt. I think it's like anything else in life. You got to go strike out on your own and go figure out the game. And that's what's not promoted. To me. How would that look? if it were promoted, like what, what are some ways that, 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 that the industry or even just hunters themselves could promote that? Woodsmanship, because you're not going to learn woodsmanship in a group of 10, right? Just no different Mm -hmm. than deer hunting. You can't go deer hunt in a group of 10 and then learn how to do that in the most effective way possible. Like you don't see, you don't Mm -hmm. see a guy tracing across the mountain trying to shoot an elk with 10 other guys, right? Right. You just can't do that. So Mm -hmm. that would be one. I would say promoting finishing birds, like actually finishing the birds would be another one because 
the less people that are there, the more that happens. So mm-hmm. instead of promoting the amount of birds you shoot, promoting how well they finished mm-hmm. would be a big way, in my opinion, to promote that. Um, and you would promote with what we do. And I'm not saying this because I make calls, but learning how to call. You're not going to learn how to call in a group of guys. Because you don't know if you made the response happen, good or bad, or the next guy made mm-hmm. the response happen. So all these things, just promoting individuality, to me, would be promoting that. Now, like I said, I'm not and saying... So the, so, the way, so the way that would actually look like in someone in a hunter's life who is on social media is they are thoughtful about their posts and mixed in with their pile pictures are also little Instagram reels, TikToks, where they're mentioning it, highlighting it, pushing, putting out the message of, of those things and not only putting out pictures of birds. Yes. Like for me, thoughtfully. Yes. I will watch a reel of birds finishing to one guy way before I'll watch it to that. Those four a friends set up with all the guns going off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I agree. Yeah. One holds my attention way. I think I would guess it holds everybody's attention longer for the most part. Now I, I would hope I would hope so. I don't I don't know that that's true. I don't know if it's um, true, but I I assume the the, the multiple A frame big group hunting just seems to be moving forward so quickly in the last four like years. Like I said, I, I don't have a problem with it. I shoot I get with buddies and we shoot a lot of birds too. It's just not as impressive to me as one guy controlling the birds finishing the birds sitting up staring down his barrel at the birds they don't know you're there like to me that guy's capturing the essence of what everybody's wanting to do really i don't want to go as far as to say people that it's horrible and bad but i can tell you we were on an opening day early zone big duck and it's pretty small marsh, not tiny, but small enough. And we were in there pretty early and we talked to a guy. Whenever I see people in a marsh and they're close enough, I head right to them. I want to talk to them before they set up, before they get decoys out. I want to be talking to them that right. way. I can be like, okay. And plus you can't tell distance in the dark. By right. Anybody. So I want to know how far you can easily set up 150 yards from someone when you think it's 400. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, w- I want to get right to them and I want to talk to them. I want to be friendly. Where are you going? And we're going to sit up here. Why don't you know that? try to basically control where they're going to set up a little bit. But so we were going in early and we came across a guy, went over and talked to him. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to be hunting over here. And um, uh, my, my son and a bunch of his college buddies there's seven of them. They're bringing two a frames out. And as soon as I hear that, my whole heart's just like, Oh, <laughs> right. No. We got seven college kids and two a frames, even 400 yards from us. Right. Because inevitably it's going to be poor shot selection. It's going to be hooting and hollering that you can hear him clear across the marsh. It's going to be, uh, it, and it's just, I don't want to just come out and say I'm against it, but everything inside of me from the behavior I see feels to be against it. That's what I said. And I don't think, I don't think it ruffles feathers because of the pile. I think it ruffles feathers because you're missing the essence of what we're doing. I think you're missing the intimacy with nature. You're missing. Yeah. The, and what you're 
I'm trying to coin how how you're saying it. The you're missing the attention to the craft is I think how yes. you really feel strongly about it. And I feel that way too. But for me, it's like, I then more, it's like you're missing the intimacy with the sport and the game. And you're like, you're missing the intimacy with the craft of, of what you're doing. Yeah. Now I also try to keep in mind that just because this is how I like to do it, doesn't mean that's how they like to do it. So the social aspect may be more important to them than the craft part of it. But my hunting style, but my, and I'm, I'm just gonna, I don't want to be around the, but my hunting style is not going to bother other people in the marsh. Right. There's is right. So, but I also see this as a lot of this is pushed as a way to sell product. Not necessarily better for the sport of waterfowl hunting. Mm -hmm. So like, in all fairness, I should probably be also pushing, let's put 10 blind, 10 guys in a blind and everybody's got four calls a piece versus let's have one guy with one duck call do his thing. Right. That probably would end up selling more calls for me in the short term. But I also know if I want to have a business, I need waterfowl hunters 20 years from now. And I don't think that right. retains them. So I think that wears off. I think that going out and socially doing it like that eventually turns to, we'll just go to the chief's game. I think is what that turns right. into. Yeah. If they, right. where yeah. we can drink heavily. Yes. I think that's what that turns into. So I would rather push the other end of this. Cause it's, I think it's better for me in business. And I think it's better for the sport of waterfowl. I think it does both things, but yeah. I'll be honest. There, there's a thing that the Delta and DU and a few other con that promote, and I think it's a terrible message. It's this list of the five stages of hunting. Mm -hmm. I think it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen because they basically tell new guys that you're going to be obsessed with shooting a lot and getting a limit. And you're trying to work your way to be this, this older conservationist who just enjoys being out there. So to me, the new guy's number one job is learning how to kill something efficiently and humanely. So that is, I would say the most important step on the chart is learning how to hunt and how to mm -hmm. hunt well, not just Which being... there is a methodology stage on there. I think that's the second stage. Yeah. I can't remember the stage. I think it's the third. Exactly. I think it's shooting trophy craft and uh, then conservation. Yeah. So I, think that's... I don't think I would rank order those as one's better than the other. Cause that's how the list presents itself. Right. Those are that is how the yeah. yeah. So to me, that's a weird message to send to a new hunter. That your goal is to go from wanting to do this hardcore to just observing, because observing a hunt is not the same as hunting. Now I hunted with a lot of old guys in my life, and they like to kill a bird as much as I did. They just they were in a different part of their life. Everything slows down when you get older. Right. So mm -hmm. I don't know if I would rank order them as this is not as good as being in this stage. I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get out of the middle stages of this. It's been 30 years. I still like to kill a lot. Yeah. I, I still like to kill them a certain way. Like, I don't know if that'll ever go away. It might. I've never been seven, but yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I think we present some funny messages to new hunters. 
like I said, to me, his job is to learn how to kill ducks the most of geese the most efficiently way possible, and that takes trigger time. Like I don't think that guy's. I don't think less of him because I don't need a lot of trigger time, and I'm more in uh, technique. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I just don't think less of that. He's just got to learn it. He's just got to learn it. So to me, it's a weird message. I want to stay on the social media topic for a while because it's just something I find. My, I'm. I mean, I've got an Instagram, a decent following on Instagram. I've got the podcast. I've got actually two podcasts now, a YouTube channel. And so social media is a huge, huge part of my life. And I I think that I'm representing the correct message. I try to, and I I think that I do, but I was something I was talking to Titus about that I've been thinking about this summer. I've posted, been posting a lot of YouTube shorts because it's very easy to, to put out a YouTube short. You just go to an old video of yours, you hit remix, you find a little section. It's so easy to do. And so I know, I know all my videos really well. And I tend to, since you're talking a 15 to 60 second clip out of a video, the most interesting parts of those videos to, to viewers on YouTube seem to be the kill shots. So I find myself going to those kill shots quickly, putting them out. And I've noticed with, with YouTube shorts, you get way more non-hunting or anti-hunter comments than you do on your regular YouTube videos. Something about the algorithm. I'm not sure, but it's like 10 to one. I, I can go a whole season and not with my YouTube videos and not get very many um, anti hunt. Now, if your video gets over a hundred thousand views, that's when it'll start filtering it in. Cause the algorithm's now pushing it out so far, but um, I can get a thousand and a half views on YouTube and maybe three or four of them are comments are how berating me and how awful it is. And so, and I talked about this on the podcast. So viewers bear with me. Cause I want to get Bobby's th- thoughts on this. Cause I've, I've fleshed this out a little bit. I just don't know where I stand. My wonder is this anti hunters, non non hunters who are adamantly against it. So they see a kill shot from me and they think what a horrible human being to kill this magnificent animal. That's probably someone who has not been raised around animal death at all. They've not been around hunters. They're not, and most of them are probably still meat eaters. They're just, so my thought is what is, if I continue to kick out these shorts with the kill shots and, and obviously if you're getting three or four comments of people saying you're horrible, there's a lot more people thinking it. They're just not commenting. it. And so is this, is, is, is putting these shorts out of kill shots where I know that a lot of people that are seeing it aren't exposed to animal death and it's giving them a negative perception of hunters. Is that a negative aspect of social media that I should be concerned about? Because I'm, I'm taking a portion of people that maybe don't think about hunting and I'm thinking, man, hunters are horrible. Hunters are horrible. And it's, is that, would you feel like that that is growing a anti hunter growing the anti hunter movement and something that, that maybe I should be leery of doing personally since you've essentially made a business out of hunting like i have Mm -hmm. i don't think you should ever apologize for what the business is Mm -hmm. so i don't think you should ever hide that part of it those you're not going to make them happy no matter what you do with the with hunting It, it wouldn't matter if you show the most 
soft thing of a, a dog retrieving a dog and getting all that. Uh, they're going to complain one way or the other about it in general. So I don't think you're fueling any fire with that. But again, like I said, I don't think you should. Like if 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 you're a brand and it deals in hunting, you have to own hunting. I think the worst mm-hmm. thing you can do is hide the hunting. And to me, that means you have to show deaths and dead animals. I think that's just part of what we do. I don't think you can. I don't think you can flirt that line and still be successful because you're mm-hmm. either you're either going to alienate the the hunters that your brand works with, or you're going to alienate the people that don't like hunting, right? Like you, you can't have both of those things. And you see some of the bigger brands right now trying to flirt that line, and I don't think it'll end up well for them. You know, you'll see on their social page, we just have very little dead animal on there. So they're kind of going away from their core audience. So I think you got to own it if that's what you do. Um, now, I've never watched your YouTube shorts. I doubt there's anything you posted on a YouTube short that I would disagree with. So that would just be my guess, right? right? So, I try to steer away from cleanup shots on cripples on the water, you know, but I try, I try to make it clean, clean kills. And if the bird's wounded on the water, I try, I try not to show it. Well, so my, my thought was you, you remember in the early nineties, we can only shoot two mallards a day. I look at like a scenario over time where the, our culture continues to drift the way it's drifting. More people living in the cities, more people being detached from nature, less and less people in the sport. We get to a time where the populations decrease. So now we even lose more hunters because, you know, a lot of people won't buy a, a license for two ducks per hunt. Something happens in the culture with, with, um, firearms I mean, things can switch in culture pretty fast. I mean, we're, we're to the point now where, you know, some people are claiming that men can give birth, right? Then that happened pretty damn quick. If you 10 years ago, if you had have said that, you know, be like, you crazy. It can happen fast. And I guess my, my fear would be that we have some kind of scenario that all these things align. Like you look in Australia, they're struggling to keep hunting that's true legal but they also don't have a constitution like we do so that's one of our most saving graces yeah and but it's being chipped away at all all the time um and so i guess the fear is that we to be careful about pushing people in the direction of anti-hunting so that when this all whirlwind 20 years down the road might possibly happen which probably won't and then boom hunting's banned um and I'm not saying that I, I'm not saying that I think that's going to happen. And I'm not saying you're wrong. What you said, it's just, that's my like long-term like fear. Right. Well, I don't think that you can, I don't think you can hide what you do and have an effect on that end. Now, right. with that said, I would love for YouTube to not monetize waterfowl content or hunting content, because I think that makes people do things they shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Right, because you can obviously show something terrible on there, and gain a lot of views, which the monetization works good comment or bad comment. So I don't like that aspect, because I think it encourages poor behavior in what we do. Um, but that that would be true with ever not just waterfowl. I mean, that's, that's right. Every- but waterfowl is the only thing I care about on that platform because like you're not going to get right. the the silliness of everyday life off of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in our sport, yeah, it encourages, in my opinion, it encourages poor behavior. 
So, because let's face it, it would be, it is exponentially easier to create a YouTube channel and show, show things that get attention versus show things that don't get attention and negative gets more attention than positive. So mm-hmm. that's my issue with the YouTube thing in particular. Um, so I'd rather they just took the monetization off of it. Now that doesn't mean that a guy with a YouTube channel couldn't, couldn't monetize on the back end with brands. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, because I would, you I just would, want to see the bad behavior not to be incentivized by you. In yeah. House. I just want to see the bad behavior, not incentivized. I'd rather see, I'd rather see the good content went out over the bad, but I think of the current system, it's not possible because of the yeah. algorithm. Yeah. Um, so now there are some guys that, that are doing a good job at competing on that way better than I am. Like, uh, I know you're doing a good job on there with it. I know that Strickland guy is doing a good job on there with mm-hmm. it. Right. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Meat Eater does a great job with it. But at the same time, I can find 10 idiots on there that are doing a really good job and definitely getting getting paid for the silliness. I would right. sum it up as childish. Right. Um, Child, so, childish and not not just an immaturity, but an ethically. Yes. Childish. It's just childish. Yeah. Which. Right obviously gets a lot of attention. So I'd like to see that go away on that part of it. But I don't think, I don't think anything anybody on YouTube is doing is going to create a long-term detriment to the sport as far as public perception of it. I, I think they're mad either direction, whether you're showing that or whatever you're showing, they're just mad. At, they're just mad at us in general for existing right now, but mm-hmm. they also are just completely ignorant because you can't have the North American wildlife model, which is the model for the entire world on how to how to interact with wildlife without hunters. It just doesn't exist. So I'd need somebody much smarter than me to explain how our North American wildlife model would exist without hunters. I don't think it can. Like I think these they may try to take hunting away, but then they take the wildlife model away, and I don't think you can function without it. Because that that doesn't just yeah. affect hunting; that affects national park. That affects everything. That is mm-hmm. so intertwined. So I don't know if they'll ever really be able to. And then, with our current uh, Supreme Court, they're not going to touch guns for quite a long time. Yeah, we certainly have some. That was the best thing that came out of Trump. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Right. I agree. Yeah, he agree did a good job on that. And those are pretty young court members, so that's not going to turn quickly. But it would right. be a catastrophe if, if that ever changed around for, for every aspect of the country. But Yes, it would. Now, there. when I go the other way with this, I definitely don't want no representation for hunters on the platforms, right? I don't think that would be a good thing. But I think... I think we need some kind of balance with the truth is we probably need to police ourselves on this deal. Right. Yeah, I I don't. And this is, these topics are why I lean towards people being able to film on public because when you allow, if you take away all of the public hunters, I think that, the representation of waterfowling on 
uh, on YouTube is going to take a hit. Now, not that all public land hunters, no, no, I would agree with that. YouTube channels are doing a good job, but I think that there is a lot of hardcore. You get hardcore public land hunters. That's a special kind of person. Um, And I think taking those guys off of the platform just because, you know, with the idea of you shouldn't be able to to make money off off public land, I think is going to be detrimental overall to the sport. I don't know. I see. I go back and forth on that one because I don't know if anybody should be able to make money off of public ground. Um, it's it's a shared resource, so I, I don't know because you're essentially making money. But see, that's a hard one. And like I said, I need somebody that's way more versed in philosophy than me. But is to go it back is it money on. off of public ground? Is it making money off of public ground, or is it making money while on public ground? See, I don't know. So, so I'm not sure those are the same thing. So I go back and forth on all this stuff, and I, and I've thought about this a lot. I ponder why I hunt a lot, just in general, right? When I look, so on my social media, you can go scroll that, and I've got, I definitely have a pile pick. There's probably 80, 100 birds in that pile pick from a day, right? And I look at that and I go, hmm, am I a am I modern day market hunting? I might be. I'm not sure. Um, it looks like an old market hunting photo. It definitely does that. Uh, so is that good? Maybe I'm not good for this. But, but so, they didn't. But they didn't have any constraints back then. You're you're still doing correct. I'm in. I'm in with the rules. And, yeah. But it's, right. it's a similar looking photo, though, right? It's a similar looking photo. Yeah. So I'm like, hmm. And you look at guides, outfitter. Man, it look like they're market hunting. And I'm not saying that's bad or good. It just it strikes a similarity. And I'm making money off of those birds. I'm making money off those birds the same as the guy that is charging to go hunt or the same as a YouTuber that's posting a video. So it's kind of market hunting. It's just the money comes from different sources. Mine comes from calls, comes from attention on those posts. Yours comes from attention on those videos. And guides come from clients paying. But now, I'm not saying this is bad or good. This is just what yeah, I you're think just thinking about. it through. Yeah. Do did they outlaw market hunting? Um, what was the reason they outlawed it? Was it because people were making money of it, or is it because they were well, there was a the shortage of, shortage of resource? Yeah. Right, and that's yeah. a, that's the big distinction to me. It is. Is that we, I mean, you mentioned earlier. I don't know if it was the last episode or this one that waterfowl hunting is kind of a young guy's sport. It's kind of the trendy young guys. We have a younger demographic. Right. And some of these guys don't have any kind of mentors at all. And to me, with the overall health of the sport, to have people presenting things on YouTube in a mentoring kind of way is outweighs the you shouldn't be able to make money on public ground so that would be my counter argument to myself is how many guys Mm -hmm. are hunting now because of a video you posted how many guys are hunting because of a video i posted right that probably outweighs the negative more than likely now the bad part is there's no way to measure it right like you'll never know but the negative being hey we all paid for that and you're making money while while enjoying it that being the negative yeah, that would be the negative. You you could also say 
you could probably also. But if everyone has the equal opportunity to do that, how is it a negative? Like no one's stopping anyone from doing that. So how does it how does it become a negative? You you could probably make the market hunting argument is the resource was getting deplenished, so they we created rules regulations. Mm -hmm. You could probably make the same argument that a guy that is profiting off of social media videos, whatever platform that is, the resource of the opportunity is depleting. But it's, but is it? Well, that is the current idea. The current KDWP regs is be from opportunity depletion. So you could, you could probably make the argument that the act of creating income from a public use is depleting it in that aspect. Like a guy could probably make that argument. I think they could, I think they could try. I would push back and say, but they're really saying it's not the opportunity. It's the quality of hunt based on pressure. So I think the phrasing would need to be changed a little yeah, bit. I'm thinking, but, which is crazy in a sport in which people generally agree. We need to monitor because we need more people hunting. Correct. You need to monitor what's going on because we need more people hunting. And at the same time say, well, we shouldn't have people promoting it on public because too many people are going to come and hunt. Now, my, my counter argument to the argument I just brought up would be, <laughs> I know, that's so why I said this is tough, right? Do you do this out loud when you're making calls? I think about no, stuff a yeah. lot. Yeah. Two-way so, conversation. Yeah. So my counter argument would be, well, if you can go film a show on the public ground has the opportunity actually been lost because obviously they found resource. Right. Right. So just like there's a Ranella's brother has got this hunt quietly thing and he is basically pushing to get rid of R three and that there's too many hunters and there's not enough opportunity. This is big game hunting, right? And there's not right. enough opportunity because of social media and film and TV shows but you're sitting there going, but you're kind of arguing with yourself because they can go film a TV show where you're telling me that you don't have good hunting opportunity. So you're like, which way is it? Is there no hunting opportunity or is there hunting opportunity? Because if it's film worthy, then there's opportunity. So I, you can go back and forth on this, right? Because that doesn't make any yeah. sense. You can't have both ways of that argument. Yeah. And I've, I've thought about this topic a lot since we talked last and I've been, I've really been struggling to come up with an arguing reason as to why I should be allowed to film my hunts on public land. And I think it really comes down to promotion of the sport promotion of the, the proper way to do, to conduct yourself in this sport. That's hard. That's subjective, right? Like I, I try to never push morals, right? When I, when I talk about new hunters and this would be a way to do it, I try to never do morals because everybody's morals are different. So I try to never do morals. Like I, I try to do that. Yeah, but you got to be careful with that because I mean, you, you know, if you go completely to like the, your atheistic worldview, then murder, you can make a case that murder is not even, not even correct. What so, I get, like, I don't care if somebody pass shoots birds, like if that's your thing, man, have at it. Right. Or if right. You, but if, once they're doing it at 65, now it becomes a moral issue. Uh, so yeah, it, that's why it's when 
in a sense, I, I do want to push morals. Picking up trash, that's a moral issue. Yeah, so I try to I try to push things from the other end, like more of this is what it means to me, and this is why I mm-hmm. do it this way, to try to just get a different thought going. Because I think a lot of this is currently I think a lot of this is I don't know another way. Like nobody's ever presented me another option for doing this. All I know right. is I sneak up behind the pond dam and I shoot everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All I know right. is the bird gets to 60 yards and it doesn't get any closer. So we shoot them. Right. I, yeah. I don't think they always know the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree completely with that. I would just say that some of the hunting ethics things we're talking about, I, I think are moral and you just can't avoid it. Yeah, probably. But I think they just need, I think especially the new ones just need some guidance as to what it's about more than agreed. You shouldn't do that. Agreed. And that's terrible. Yeah. 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 I would agree. I would agree with that. Now, like what I would like to see, is if there's a video of a guy driving a boat around in a marsh for four hours and driving through the rafts of ducks, I would love to see other waterfowlers <laughs> go, hey, you're an idiot. Yes. Yeah. Like, sit police yourself. Like, hey, we nobody likes this. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd like to see him just shoot the guy a message instead of boost his algorithm. Like, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. Yeah. Shooting a message. Right. And, you know, nobody's impressed by this. this. This is all the ways you're ruining it for everybody. Well, I think that that did get policed internally in the waterfowl community, though. From, yeah. from my knowledge, it's like, well, you can't do that anymore legally. So that right. is kind of a good example of the waterfowl community yeah. policing that. Yeah. But like, I would never shoot a guy a message and say, hey, you're jump shooting. Like, you shouldn't do that. I would never do it. You do what you want. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yes. We yeah. need, we definitely need less judgmental. It's easy to be like a dog over his food dish with waterfowl hunting. Yeah, like that's why I'm Why are you doing that? You shouldn't do that. You're an idiot for doing that. And that pervades on social media. That is absolutely a negative thing. I am not on any groups because they just yell at each other for asking questions. And I I get the same questions asked. I don't know how many times I type out. I have auto responses saved on questions (laughs) I get from from guys that are just getting into this, right? Because I answer them so much. That's just part of this. It's, yeah. So the groups get really mad over the same question asked over. Well, but he doesn't know. Yeah. Well, he could search it. I'm like, nobody does that. Yeah. There's so right. much stuff on social media. Nobody's searching. It. it would certainly be nicer inside the waterfowl community. If on comment threads, Facebook groups, people acted a little more welcoming and a little less judgmental. That's no doubt. I don't understand why people need to be so emotional about such minute topics like water swatting as an example. I don't know. Yeah, I don't right. understand why anyone would be mad about that. Yeah, I don't care. It just To me, that's a moral thing. I, I don't care how you want. If the bird landed in the spread, I don't care how you killed the bird. I'd like you to kill it dead. Yeah. Right? But I and I know care. how I like to do it. Yeah. But to be angry that you don't do things how I like to do them is so strange to me. Yeah. I just, so the other thing that I find strange about our current culture, and I would relate this to just culture in general. You hear that socialism is getting, this is way going into the weeds. Socialism is getting pushed really hard right now. We're in that trend. 
And that basic premise is you got rich by taking from me. And we seem to have a little bit of that going in waterfowl hunting. If you're successful, you're taking from me. And it doesn't work that way, which seems to look like that's a lot of the arguing. Somebody's success takes away from somebody else's success. And it's not really that way. We're about as free market in waterfowl hunting as we are in the rest of life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just a general mentality. I think that's kind of what's going on with the Kansas regulations. Cause these guys on the forums, I can't tell you how many out of state guys I know that come into the state and kill lots of birds. And yet the people that are complaining are saying that they, you know, the opportunities are horrible now. That's how, what I how say. are both those things true. We can't have both of those arguments. If the out of state right. guy can come and be successful, then there's success there to be had. So right. you can't have both of those be true. So right. it's a hard thing. That's what I say. It's it's a really hard thing to look at and go, yeah, it's probably good. Because you, you can't tell me that we have no resource and then this person has the resource, just like for filming. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure it's not just if you're successful, you're taking success from me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same as the only way to get rich is by taking from somebody else. It seems to be a very similar. That, that makes sense. And when for hardcore North American waterfowlers, it's tied into our ego more than we would even like, I think. Um, and I don't necessarily mean that Navy. It's like so much of who we are that we want our fellow waterfowl hunters to think we're competent to, you know, it becomes a part of your, of a deep ingrained part of who you are and your identity. Like for me, I went from college baseball to waterfowling. So my, my identity was a baseball athlete. And then it immediately it's, and it's not like I'm consciously thinking this, but looking back, it's just so ingrained in how we perceive ourselves. And I think that that, greatly complicates our emotions on the topic or in a way if that makes sense so i'm gonna i'm gonna go into the weeds a little bit on this and i'm gonna tell you the changes i've seen in waterfowl hunting since i first started so i'm 46 i believe this summer in august so i started doing this really hard when i was 18 or 19 right these are the changes i've seen and i think this is actual the actual rub that is going on Nobody hunted farm ponds very much when I was young. Like, that just wasn't a thing. That has become a thing the last, say, 10 years. A lot of people hunt farm ponds. I don't know anybody that hunted fields for ducks when I was 19 years old. Never heard of that before. You hunted geese, but you didn't hunt ducks in a field, right? Now the robo came out and spinner came out, and that's a different thing, right? They kind of brought field hunting to be a thing. But agriculture has changed tremendously in the last 30 years. No-till farming is completely changed the entire central flyway. Short season corn has completely changed. They grow corn in Canada now. That, that wasn't hmm. a thing back then, right? So I honestly believe we have more waterfowl now than we probably, we probably have had since the market hunting days but they are very, very spread out. So I don't think, 
I don't think the problem is there's too many hunters because you can mathematically look and go, okay, well, there was 4 million hunters in this. I don't know what the numbers are. I'm just making stuff up. There was 4 million hunters in the central flyway and now there's 2 million. So we obviously don't have more hunters than we had 30 years ago. We have less hunters. Just, you can statistically look that up, right? But I think the birds are vastly spread out now across the country. A good example, when I first started uh, so I, this, I believe this summer is my 20 years on duck hunts. We probably started filming two or three years after I started the business. If there were birds in Nebraska, we didn't have a lot of birds in Kansas. And if it got cold enough that the birds went from Nebraska to Kansas, I couldn't go north to film a hunt. There wasn't any birds. Hmm. Now I can go, if the seasons are open, I can go clear to Canada and shoot birds all year. They're just spread out. So I don't. I think the issue is there's just not the concentrations of birds on all the refuges like we had. So the opportunity on the refuge itself is less, or the lake or the area is just less because everything is more spread out. The year, it was two years ago, we got to negative 20 in February. Everybody killed geese because the geese migrated. I think it was the greatest goose hunting we've had in forever. They did that from here to Oklahoma, right? Those birds pushed out and you had big concentrations in a smaller area. And I mean, Minnesota still has ducks in February. They didn't go south. So I think they're just spread out, but they have food now because as soon as you start no-till farming, that guy goes in with combine and he cuts that corn and then he immediately goes in and plants a cover crop. Well, that dirt's never turned. So that corn kernel, they can feed on that corn kernel, whether it's negative 20 or or 30 above, because that's not turned over. It's not frozen to that ground. They don't run out mm -hmm. of food. We have power plants now that are hot water up and down the flyway. They always have water. So we're, we've just spread ducks out across the country. Right. Yeah. So I think I think what everybody is actually arguing about is that, that they, there's not a mass concentrations of ducks in your state in your region where you can have your good two weeks where it was just crazy right i, I think that's the actual rub and i don't think that's going to change so the guys yeah. that are really successful now they hunt everywhere they drive way more like my, my yeah. uncle's not around anymore that i hunted with if i told him i was doing a four-hour scouting loop he'd have looked at me like i was insane huh. they just didn't do that yeah did yeah. they not need to they, well, they, they didn't, didn't. Yeah, they didn't need to. Yeah. Um, they just didn't do that back then. You hunted ducks that were around you, and you took your time when there was a whole bunch of ducks, and you shot the hell out of them, and then you went on. But hmm. they're not always... Like, I would love to know the refuge count on the bottoms over the last 30 years. Like, what are the peak I'm numbers sure over that. the I'm last... I'm sure they have I'm that sure they do. somewhere. Yeah, like, what are the peak numbers over the last 30 years? Yeah. Yeah, That would be right? interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think we've just spread ducks out, and everybody's competing over a uh, smaller concentration of waterfowl in their area is what's going on. I hear a lot of people complaining about shifting flyways west and to east and i have no idea people have asked me i was like i have no clue i feel like i there's i feel like every year i hunt there's ducks to kill um 
Sound so the what, same what are way. your thoughts on shifting shifting migration? I don't know. I don't even know how you would even come up with an opinion. I mean, I don't even know how you would gauge that in your mind from what you see as a one person hunting. I'm not sure how you gauge that either. I can't say I think anything has shifted. Um, we definitely have specs in places that we didn't used to have concentrations of specs. And a lot of them. But I don't know if there's a shift in in where they're going or there's just more speckle valleys. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I had to guess, there's just more speckle valleys. If I had data on that, mm-hmm. I would just guess the speckle valley population is boomed. Um, but you know, a lot of that can also be there's crop in places that there wasn't normally that type of crop in mass mm-hmm. that can move mm-hmm. a bird one way or the other, or it can just keep, it can just keep birds around uh, just cause like with the specs, just because we we have a higher concentration of specs doesn't mean they didn't fly over before. It just means they didn't stay here. There may just right. be enough habitat for them to stay now. Or there's loss of habitat south of us, right? Because mm-hmm. they, I know rice, I don't know a lot about the south, but I know rice farming has changed drastically. Louisiana, mm-hmm. Arkansas, the coastline is different. So that yeah. may have just changed that. So they're here instead of there. It doesn't mean they didn't fly over you before. Right. Yeah, so I don't know if it's anything has shifted one way or the other. Um, now, you definitely, like if you take the Missouri side, Truman Reservoir was built sometime in the 70s. I believe it was 77, the year I was born, the year they flooded it, right? Well, before that reservoir was there, everything went down the Missouri River on the St. Louis side. But you put in Truman Reservoir, which sits at about 60,000 acres of pool and 200 and some thousand at flood. But you have... Montrose Power Plant, it's closed now, but that was a refuge. You had Shell Osage, then you have Four Rivers Refuge. Well, you're going to send a hell of a lot of ducks off the east side of that state with that complex. Right. Yeah. So you could say that that flyway shifted west in that state. Yeah. Now, there right. was ducks over there before, but not like there is now. Hmm. Which also, that's a huge shortstop for Arkansas. True. Yeah. So that's not like that right there. That's not corn shortstopping a duck. That's four refuges and a beautiful lake that's shortstopping ducks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think some shifts are just seasonal too. Like I know for a fact with the bottoms being dry and the drought, mallards just were not either they were overflying it or they were coming east. That's they right were now. Not. That is absolutely... Even on fronts, they weren't seeing mallards in the middle part of the state. Well, that's right. If there's no water, there's nothing there for a waterfowl. So that will absolutely... But that's not a long-term shift. That's just last year because of, you know, because of the conditions. You'll have some ingraining on that, right? Because you had new birds that went east or west. Um, Like, I'd assume... I haven't talked to anybody in Colorado, but I assume last year Colorado picked up a bunch of birds because they obviously had to go around. Um, Yeah. Because the east side of Kansas was fairly wet last year right um right yeah the cutoff line i didn't was, feel like we had a huge influx in birds from the previous year i no, have, i wouldn't say it was anything great year. yeah i wouldn't say it was anything i think they did an abnormality and i think they ran to arkansas last year yeah yeah i think is where they went because arkansas had a banger year and they're really we had that one cold front and i think it was around christmas when we hit negative mm-hmm. 10 or 15 which obviously right. would have shoved some south but I didn't see any different last year than I have any other year, but obviously they weren't in Western Kansas because the drought line yeah. was about Cottonwood Falls. Right. 
Yeah. But, you know, you'll I'm about have... done with this drought. I am about done with this drought. <laughs> it's still dry. I know. But, again, the east Better. side of the state is way wetter than west of Cottonwood Falls. Like, I don't... I yeah, doubt we're... the... I doubt the... Our lake's over pool right now. I was going to say, does the bottoms have any water right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then they, they're a little well, better. Well, unless it's year. evaporated. But right. uh, they, they had a, they had a uh, five-inch rain. Okay. Uh, so they were... I mean, not a lot, but they did have... They did have we're starting to hold water. So it's been hot. So, I mean, you're going to lose half inch inch a day. Yeah. Yeah. When it hits above 90, you're going to, it loses quick, but right. That's why their refuge. That's why Jason Wagner was saying their refuge can get up to six feet deep. So if they can get everything in there in one of those pools and they can lose a lot less water. Oh yeah. Yeah. I said you can easily drop a half inch on a hundred degree day. It's amazing how much water. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But so, I don't know. If you go back, I don't know what's good on social. I definitely don't want no, I definitely don't want to have no voice on there, but at the same time, I don't know. You know, my biggest, my biggest problem with the whole deal. And I can't, I can't fight this as a brand because social media checks every box for marketing. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. But the platform does not support hunting, any of the platforms. So you look at it and you're like, well, I don't know why we should support it. That's my biggest rub with the whole thing. Not not the content, it's the actual platform itself. Because they they would rather we weren't on there. So like I don't know why we're why why we're making the platform better for them. Yeah. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna curb to whatever they think the majority wants. Yeah. So that's my biggest problem. Their, their perception, right? But then you go the other way, and you're like, "Well, I'm not sure it'd be better if we weren't on there at all." Because then there's no. No, place. I don't think that. I yeah. don't think that's the answer. You have to play that game if you want to be successful. Oh, absolutely. Other than just posting for fun, I mean, if you're trying to grow and build something, like you said, it checks every box. You have. No. Right, well, that was, that was um, is there any talk, other topics so we or thoughts you have before we part? Well, again, I appreciate you coming on here and talking with me. I'll uh, always enjoy it. And let everyone I know once again on where they can Instagram, find you and your you calls. Just type in Ducklander Call Company, or you can type in DLC Handcut. I believe that pulls up my page. So uh, you call the shop, or like I said, you shoot me an email. I'm the only person that answers any of it. So if you shoot a message off, I'm the one typing you back. All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, My name is Elliot, and I have been with Bobby Hayes for this edition of the North American Waterfowler Podcast.